It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. Where does your food come from? Sure, ultimately, you might be getting it from a grocery store or maybe even a farmer's market. But before it gets there, someone had to cultivate it, grow it, get it ready for that market. The AJC is taking a look at some of the Georgia folks providing our food with the Georgia On My Plate series. And food and dining editor Lagaya Figueres is here to bring us some of those conversations with local farmers. Hi, Lagaya. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm great. And you? I'm great. I've been visiting farms out in the fresh air. <laughs> That's nice. I, I love that. So so you've been talking with some of these people as well about uh, what they do. Yeah, this is a really exciting um, series that we started in February, and it's going to run through January of next year um, in partnership with Kroger. Um, it enables us to go around, around the state uh, and talk with growers and producers about you know what they grow and also you know how they're producing it. Um, so far, it's taken us to to three farms. I visited Decimal Place Farm. That's a goat farm up in uh, or down in Conley, Georgia, not far from you know downtown Atlanta, really. Right. And that's run by Mary Rigdon, um, and she uses goat milk to make delicious cheese. Um, Last month, I visited Grateful Pastures in Mansfield, Georgia. That's the only USDA certified organic pastured poultry farm in Georgia. That sounds like that's a lot of words, but it's important. Um, And it was established just in 2015 by Sean Terry and his wife, Sabrina. They're so, so sweet. And they raise broilers for meat and then also, um, you know, laying chickens for their eggs. And then most recently, I was at Levity Farms, actually not too far away from Grateful Pasture. That's in Madison. 
And I spoke with uh, the owners, Alana and Zach Richard, their husband and wife, they're first generation farmers. Um, and they just got 10 acres of land there and they are a permaculture farm. Um, and they grow primarily um, vegetables. And so, you know, we're, yeah, we're going around the state and every month it's a different crop. Um, it's a different people. And it's just been really fascinating to get up close and personal um, with the food. In some cases, this food, you know, that you can, you'll find it at farmer's markets or some grocery stores, but um, to see the people behind you know, the, the food and how much care and love they put into this, bringing us this food has been um, terrific. Yeah, well, I, I love this because, you know, they, we try to eat more local. It's, it's better for, for everything, really. It's better for us. It's better for the environment. It's, it's just a better way to eat. And it's great to hear from some of these people who are making things locally. Right. Well, and I, even learning about their technique, just as for instance, you know, with, with Levity Farm and permaculture, it really isn't something that I was necessarily familiar with. Um, sometimes people refer to it as like, is it sort of like a hippie organic lifestyle slash farming? And maybe so, but um, it's really fascinating to understand the idea behind it of taking a really holistic approach to to farm life itself. So it's not just put planting something in the ground, but how, you know, how it's done. Um, and some of them with, um, with both Levity Farms, the permaculture farm and Grateful Pastures, just d discussions about um, long-term care for the soil, you know, that there's not an idea of like, I wanna, I mean, you know, until this and and I'm only gonna use this farm for a limited amount of time. It's the great desire to, to be on the land for a very long time and be stewards of it. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that's interesting. You know, and with Grateful Pastures too, it's interesting with some of these um, independent farmers that I've spoken with, learning about some of the limitations that they have in being independent farmers. And with Grateful Pastures, that, that poultry farm, because they are USDA certified organic, um, they are, they're limited in terms of where you can take that meat to be processed. And so Terry had been driving up north um, out of state um, to Tennessee in order to have that happen. And if you can imagine that, you know, road trip every six weeks sure cuts into what the time that you could spend on the farm. And so he actually just this month um, um, is one of two people that that is behind an independent processing facility, the first one that we have in Georgia called Atlanta Processing, Atlanta Poultry Processing. And so it's the first and only USDA inspected poultry processing facility in Georgia um, that's open to independent farmers and even backyard chicken farmers. Um, but it's exciting that it's like, well, when they see this problem, he's, you know, trying to be part of a solution that um, can ultimately more mean, you know, more sustainable um, farming and hopefully even to um, get other folks on board with organic farming, um, certified organic farming um, that makes it viable. Yeah, that's great. And, and the thing is, even if all of these uh, environmental issues and all of that do doesn't matter to some folks, 
the the end product always tastes better generally so, <laughs> so it's, you know even if you don't care about that you might want to care about how your food tastes and and this stuff is is just better yeah it's terrific and it's great and you know so in partnership with Kroger uh, besides these stories that um you know um we're doing once a month and there are videos the one from Grateful Hashers is pretty cool because we even have this drone going above the the farm so you can really get a look at it but um, we also have recipes and those have been developed by Kroger um, and they're using the products that are grown by the, um, uh, the type of crop um, or product that's, that's um, grown by, by these farmers. So yeah, we get um, stories and videos and uh, now podcast. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's great. So, well, why don't we uh, go ahead and hear from some of these farmers? Yeah, so we are going to be talking with Ilana Richards from Levity Farms in Madison to learn more about permaculture and what they do on their 10 acres. Awesome. Thanks so much for bringing us this, Lagaya. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm joined now by Alana Richards to talk about permaculture and how she and Zach apply the principles and practices of this type of farming at Levity Farms. Hi, Alana. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Lagaya. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, I wish I could actually be back at your farm right now. That was terrific to visit. And that's why I'm really asking you uh, here today because um, I'm, I learned so much when I visited. And I think most of all, I learned so much about permaculture, which I, you know, I, I really didn't know much about it. So for folks who are newbies like, like I was, um, can you give us an overview of, of, of permaculture? So permaculture is a term that describes an entire collection, a, a toolkit, uh, essentially, um, that is comprised of an entire collection of practices and principles and methods based on, for, for living based on observations from um, natural systems. So this applies to agriculture, but it can also apply to building a home, to building a community, to running, essentially it can apply to running small communities. Um, we just specifically focus a lot on the agricultural implementation of permaculture principles at the farm. And now it, it's not necessarily new, right? This dates back a f quite a few decades. Actually, uh, so permaculture, the, the word permaculture was coined, I believe it was the late 1970s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. But actually, these observations of natural systems have been guiding practices of different communities and different people for, I mean, centuries since the beginning of time. Um, it was only recently in the late 20th century, all all called permaculture and um, kind of presented to the public as a, uh, he, I mean, um, as, as a, a written collection of principles and methodology, but these are ancient practices. And, and for you and Zach specifically, how did both of you become advocates of permaculture? What sort of, you know, training or background led you to, to become permies, as they say? <laughs> well, Zach... Um, Zach, Zach and I have been friends since 2009 when we met and a few years later, uh, I had just graduated from college and Zach was studying 
uh, horticulture at a small college up in North Georgia, and he was interning at a farm in North Georgia, in uh, Jasper specifically, and we were still friends and we kept in touch. And he called me one day and said, Alana, I'm, I'm, I've been working at this farm. They, this guy, this farmer, Jamie, he's really cool. He knows all about permaculture. You got to come see it. And I was like, okay. You know, I just graduated, wasn't sure what I wanted to do tomorrow. So I went to go see him and it was, I mean, it was, it's unfair how beautiful this farm was that I went to go visit. I mean, you know, it was, it was mid, it was early to mid spring. So the flowers were starting to bloom and, you know, butterflies and bees are flying everywhere. It was just such a beautiful place. And we started, I, I decided I wanted to move there too. And the two of us worked, he was more working in the field. Um, but I was working with working there and offsite as well. But we, we started learning about growing food and learning a little bit about permaculture practices. And we just decided that, uh, so there, there was a farmer and his wife and their daughter all living there. And Zach and I would talk every day about what an amazing life these, this farmer was giving to his daughter and, and the farmer and his wife were giving to their daughter and they just lived. It seemed they were really just living in harmony with the seasons and they were eating fresh food and getting fresh air. And Zach and I grew up in and around Atlanta. So leaving this, you know, experiencing a healthy life that was completely different from the hustle bustle of the city was just really inspiring. And we decided we both wanted that lifestyle for ourselves. And then we kind of looked at each other and we were like, well, why don't we do it together then? <laughs> we already knew each other and loved each other from being friends for so many years. And so we just decided, all right, well, let's start making plans to learn more about per permaculture and raise a family on a farm together. Here we are. And so you started out actually renting land up in um, Milton for a few years, right? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, we started, uh, we kind of land shopped a little bit. Uh, we had a friend who was working on the business, working on farming with us at the time. And we worked on, we had some other friends who were renting property out west. And we, you know, practiced sort of practice farming essentially out on their property. We looked for some other land, kind of shopped around a little bit. And Zach's, my husband Zach's dad um, has a friend who got wind of what we were doing or what we were hoping to do. And he called us up and said, hey guys, I've got a couple acres in Milton. Um, I would love to see a farm there if you guys are interested. And so we, we're, we're like, well, it's a great location. It had re it had previously been horse pasture, so the soil was really fresh and just begging to be farmed. And we said, okay, let's let's get started. And we built the business there. Um, it was a rental. It was a non permanent situation, and we knew that we knew from the beginning that we eventually wanted to buy our own land and live on site. Um, and at the at the Milton location, living on site was not an option. It would never become ours. And because it was not a permanent location, we couldn't, we didn't feel it was smart to invest in um, semi to permanent infrastructure or, you know, long-term perennials and fruit trees and those kinds of systems that are all part of our permaculture plans. So we spent a few years farming there, renting there, building the business, um, 
and getting a name for ourselves, learning about our farming practices, what we like, what works for us, um, deciding on how we wanted to operate the business. And all the while, we would spend our winters when the field requires less physical labor, we would spend our winters looking for land and shopping around for land. Um, we actually found a couple different properties over the years that we got pretty close to pretty close to deciding we wanted to buy, but at the last minute, they just didn't work out. Um, and last, well, now it's two Februarys ago. So February of 2020, we were at a conference, uh, an agriculture, actually it was a Georgia organics conference in Athens. And while we were in Athens, we had a friend who said, Hey, why don't, why don't you look for land out this way? You know, we, we had always been looking up North toward the mountains. We always just knew we wanted to farm you know, somewhere on the way between here and Asheville or here in Tennessee, somewhere up in the Northwest mountains. And so we never even considered looking out this way. But in February of 2020, we thought, well, why not? What does it hurt to just look? And so we started looking and we found this little town called Madison. And it's is about 30 to 40 minutes south of where we were in Athens. So we drove by to check it out, fell completely in love with the town and also happened to find a lot of really promising land at really um, approachable prices at the time. And so that was in February. And then in early March, I'm sorry, in, in that was early February. So late February, we met Scott, who owns the land, owned the land that we purchased. Um, obviously, we hadn't purchased it yet. And he is a farmer who is retiring and moving down to South Georgia and wants to sell his farmland. But he was looking, he was hoping, it's, it's a 10 acre track, tract, and he was hoping to find a, a young, enthusiastic farming family that would, because he's very passionate about growing food. And so he was hoping to essentially pass the land on to the next generation of farmers who would really appreciate the land and all the work and love that he's put into the property here. And we were hoping to find kind of an older farmer who was ready to pass that land on. So without really trying, we stumbled upon this amazing farm successorship opportunity. And um, that was in early March of 2020. And right as the pandemic was about to hit, we were thinking, okay, I mean, before we even were, were really thinking much about the pandemic, we were, we were getting ready to put our tomatoes in the ground and we were still at the Milton property and Zach and I looked at each other and we said, well, tomatoes stay in the ground for the better part of the year. I mean, they'll be in the ground for several months. So do we want to see if maybe Scott will let us go ahead and plant our tomatoes in the Madison property? Um, just sort of like a good faith thing. And we talked to him and he was, he said, well, the contract isn't signed on the sale yet, but if you want to plant your tomatoes here, if it doesn't work out, then I'm just going to keep your tomatoes. And so... Um, we knew we were, you know, we knew we were moving forward with plans to buy the property at that point. And so last year was a big year for you in the sense that you moved your entire, you know, the farm from Milton to uh, Madison. And I know that this past seven months in particular, it's been crazy, not just the move, but also now this new, the your care for this new, um, new land. Can you tell us you know what that was like to actually move a farm? <laughs> well, 
Zach would really be better qualified to tell you what the physical moving part was like because I had a just a few month old baby at the time. And so I wasn't really doing most of the heavy lifting. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that we were harvesting everything out of the field in the Milton property and selling that at the same time as starting to break down some of the temporary infrastructure and some of the equipment and tools and move them to the new property. Um, I, I brought up the fact that the pandemic hit because there was no one on the streets. There's no traffic. So that made the drive. It's like maybe an hour and a half to hour and 45 from Milton to the new farm. So that was kind of like a little gift, a little silver lining of, of the pandemic because Zach was able to make trips back and forth in the truck several times a day. Um, so I know that helped. So there was a lot of driving. We, uh, had sold our house. We were living uh, in, in Woodstock near the old farm. We sold that house to have some money to invest into the new property, but there was no place to live on the new property yet. We had plans to build a house, but we hadn't built it. So we were staying with Zach's parents until we had the new house set up. So there was a lot of back and forth. We had stuff at the old farm, stuff at Zach's parents' house, some stuff at the new farm. We were storing some things in my parents' house. Um, it was quite a year. And now when I visited you in the spring, um, there's lots of signs of life over there. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about all of the, the products that you grow? Yeah, so we grow a very diverse uh, crop regimen we've got um we focus heavily on salad greens that's sort of what i like to call our signature move we grow a few different varieties of lettuce and some cut baby field greens like arugula and baby kale and things like that in the summertime we grow like i said tomatoes eggplant pep lots of different varieties of peppers we grow specifically for chefs so we grow a lot of really unique specialty products but we also grow for um, a local market and um, are considering ex expanding our options for sales. Um, but at any given time, you can come by the farm and you'll see plenty of lettuce and salad greens growing. We do small root vegetables all year, radish, carrots, uh, baby hawkeye turnips. And uh, we this year we're ramping up our cut and ornamental flower production. So we'll have a lot of cut flowers coming in. In fact, the zinnias have already started blooming. So yeah, a little bit of everything. We, um, we also planted several hundred row feet of potatoes this year. It's our first time growing potatoes, but um, we've got all this land and we live here now. So we've got plenty of time to tend to it. So this year we've added potatoes to our regimen. Very exciting. I actually tasted um, uh, your, let's see, I think it was your snap. No, what did I, what was it that I? Um, you had some of our, I believe you tried some of our uh, winter peas, the pea shoots. Yes, your pea shoots. Those were delicious. Those were delicious. So the, the pea shoots are cool. It's actually, um, 
So part of our permaculture inspired practices is that we try to um, inter intervene uh, in the soil, interrupt the soil food web as little as possible. Um, so we don't do a lot of tilling. In fact, we call ourselves a low till or minimal till farm for now. Eventually we'll be completely no till, but we're, we're getting there. And instead of tilling the soil, one of the ways that we um, are able to aerate the soil, return nutrients to the soil without a lot of um, synthetic inputs um, is that we plant cover crop. And one of the cover crops we planted this past fall was winter peas. Um, and we planted it just as a, as a really nice cover crop. And in about, maybe it was late February or early March, our daughter, Harlan, was sitting in the field and I noticed she was munching on the peas. The, the, and they were just like long pea shoots or tendrils at this point. I noticed she was munching on it and I thought, why is she eating the cover crop? And then I thought, wait a second, pea shoots are delicious. Everybody loves pea shoots. And so we started, we grew the cover crop for the soil, but then we ended up harvesting some of it and selling it. So it was a nice little winter bumper for us. Win-win for everybody. You know, um, when I yeah. visited and Zach, Zach used uh, what is, it's very relatable term in terms of saying that your approach is with lean farming methods to mit, quote, minimize inputs to maximize outputs. And as you mentioned, to be, you know, trying to be low till, to get to the point that you can be no till, um, it was surprising to me to not see any sort of big equipment on your farm, you know, like hooking massive um, tractors. And one of the things that was fascinating the first time I had seen it was that Japanese paper pot transplanter system that you use. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. So it's called the paper pot transplanter. I believe the technology is from Japan, um, but... The, the, there's been a, a company called Paper Pot Co. established that's brought it to the West and made the, this equipment more available to us kind of smaller scale farmers. So uh, the idea of minimum inputs and maximum outputs. So we're talking about not only minimizing the amount of physical inputs like um, amendments, different fertilizers and things into the soil. We're also talking about minimizing our energetic input and our labor input. So uh, one of the ways that we grow plants is a method called transplanting, which is you start the seeds in a tray in the greenhouse, and when they germinate, you harden them off and then plant them in the ground. Previously, we were planting our seeds in the ground by hand, which means walking down the row, take one out of the tray, bend down, dig a hole, plant it, cover it, sometimes stand up to take one step to the left and bend back down. It, I mean, it, as you can imagine, it's, it was very labor-intensive, takes a very long time. It's very tedious. Our, our skills are, our time is, is very valuable. And it's, it was a very, it was a very bottleneck activity, um, not to mention it was exhausting. And this paper pot transplanter is one of the ways that we lean up our operation by minimizing the labor required to plant because instead of a 128 or 72 cell rigid plastic tray to start the, tr the seeds in, the paper chain, tr the paper, tr paper pot trays are actually these wound up biodegradable paper chains that you can plant in them just like you would plant a, pl a rigid plastic transplant tray. 
The difference is when it's time to put the plants in the ground, you can essentially feed this chain through a machine. It's not, it's not an electrical machine. It's, it looks like a giant scooter that you pull over a bed. Um, and you start to unravel the chain and feed it into this machine, and then you can just pull the, the transplanter down the row, and it's got a furrowing tool. It's got these bent bars at the end, that a little chain that'll rebury the plants, uh, that'll replant the transplants into the ground. It takes, so manually transplanting an entire 100-foot row of, or 100-foot bed of salanova, or of our lettuce, let's say, would take maybe... 45 to an hour, depending on who's planting. Um, but with the paper chain, the whole bed or even a couple beds could get planted in under 20 minutes. Um, and another benefit to the paper chain is all of the plants are perfectly evenly spaced out because the chain is even lengths. Um, like I said, it's less labor, so it saves our back, it saves our energy, it saves time. It is. It has been a... Um, a real a real boon for our operation All right and some of the innovations that i saw there also were novel um very creative in your barn you've got uh now two actually dinged up washing machines that zach turned into salad spinner for your lettuces did that second one get installed uh we're still working on it he um so the second one's a little bit it's a, it's a nicer machine. Um, it's in better condition than the first one was that Zach kind of learned on. So we want to make sure that we're, you know, the first machine, we took it apart and put it back together a whole bunch of times. This one, we want to try to get it as close to right as possible. So uh, we're waiting until we have just the right equipment. And we recently ordered the wrong size basket for it. So. It's, it's all a learning process. I, I was also impressed with the irrigation system that you set up and the, well, I guess Zach and, and with the help of some electricians, I'm going to guess, but to, <laughs> that it can be controlled from one central location right by your living you know, area with the touch of a switch. And I suppose, I, were you even telling me, you know, at some point you can be able to control that with your phone? <laughs> That's the goal is to get it, is to get, uh, the, all the manifolds, all the irrigation manifolds on a wireless system, whether it's Bluetooth or internet, so that it connects to our home router so that if we're at a farmer's market and it's getting really hot outside, I can just pull out my phone and flick my finger across the screen and then have the water turn on to cool down the lettuce. But we're not quite there yet. <laughs> the other thing that stuck out for me when I visited was your house, um, which, uh, I mean, that was, that's built by Zach, right? <laughs> Zach helped build it. Yes. We, we hired a, a team of contractors, um, to build the house. So, so you have this house that's technically inside a barn, but one of the unique rooms in the five room house is, um, the room near the, at the entrance and it has no windows. Can you tell people why? I find this very fascinating. So we, well, first of all, windows cost money. <laughs> so when we were choosing where to put the windows in the barn house, we thought, well, what, where, what makes the most sense to put a window? So we thought we had this one room that was going to be the bedroom. And we thought, well, we're going to spend a lot of time in the office, a lot of time in the kitchen. We don't, 
we may not, maybe we don't need a window in the bedroom because really all we do in the bedroom is sleep and you kind of want it to be dark when you sleep anyway. So we get, we, so we, we sleep in the room with no windows. Um, we do keep the door cracked so that when the morning light comes in the kitchen window, we can tell what time of day it is in the mornings. Um, right. And, and you said that this summer now, Zach has learned based on last year's findings that, um, he, that nighttime farming is a thing for him. Oh man. Oh, man. Tell um, us about that because you are in Georgia. I mean, it's hot down here. It's a very interesting thought. So not only are we in Georgia, but we are in, um, I actually don't know if this is considered middle Georgia or not, but we're in zone eight a, which is actually one zone South of where we were used to farming. And when it, I mean, we've only been here for one summer and to be fair, last summer we didn't have the barn set up. We didn't have an air conditioned respite from the heat. Um, but, uh, yeah. So in, in the middle of, I mean, there, there are days in the months of even as early as July, but really August and September, even there are days that are so hot that between uh, as early as 11 or noon and even six o'clock PM, it is almost, it feels like it's almost impossible to get anything done in a healthy way outside. So we've adapted to Georgia to summer in Georgia. And when the temperatures start to rise, uh, probably starting next month, we'll begin to do a couple days here and there of night farming. But um, we'll, we get up a little earlier in the morning, work outside maybe from five until about nine, come in, have some breakfast, go back out for a couple hours. And then in the middle of the day, we come inside, we do office work, we have a nice, really big lunch. Instead of a big dinner, we do a really big lunch, spend time with the baby, clean the house, just kind of take a nap and rest, and then go back out around 8 o'clock. And sometimes, I can't make it this long, but sometimes Zach will continue working from 8 till, till 1 or 2. Um, just put on a headlamp, maybe set up some floodlights, go out in the field and prune tomatoes or pick squash beetles or squash bugs or, you know, sometimes harvest in the evening. Um, just trying to be adaptable and make this business, you know, we're, we're, it, we're not just, I tell people we're not focused on making a living. We are focused on building a life. And that's what makes permaculture farming different than more traditional, even small scale local agriculture is we live here and part of the the reward is the lifestyle. So at the end of the day, our bank account doesn't look like what the average business owner in America's bank account looks or maybe it does these days, I don't know. But one thing that we are taking home is is the lifestyle. Right. So. And, and so since you are, you know, you're a year uh well, almost a year into kind of setting down roots on that property. What are your plans for the future? Where, where do you hope to see Levity Farms, you know, five, ten years from now? Well, we are in the process of working out getting some more of this property graded so we can plant some fruit and nut trees. And those will take up to, you know, start fruiting and nutting in about five to ten years even. We want to have, so we want to have some orchard space. We want to have some animal systems, so definitely chickens, but that won't take five years. That'll hopefully be this or next year. 
We eventually want to run some sheep and uh, just continue to expand our perennial, our perennial growths. Um, when we bought the property, it had been cleared because the, the Scott whom we bought it from was following more traditional agricultural practices. So he just kind of cleared the whole property and made it flat. And we are looking to sort of reforest it, plant more trees, cover more of the soil. You know, you don't, you don't see a lot of bare soil in nature. You don't see a lot of straight lines and you don't see a lot of bare soil in nature. That's something Zach always says. So we really want to build the farm back up to a place that looks more like you might see it in, an, in an, a natural landscape. Um, so we are hoping to return a lot of tree and perennial growth to the soil and um, yeah. Maybe, maybe dig a pond out and get some ducks here to complete the animal systems. Um, Sounds like paradise. <laughs> well, Lana, I think we're, we're, we're out of time, but I do want to thank you so much for, for sharing your story, also for letting us visit um, your farm. And for those of you who are looking for more information about Levity Farms, you can check out their website at levityfarms.com. You can see some photos of what's happening on the farm if you visit them on Instagram at levityfarmsga. And to read more about Levity Farms and other Georgia farmers who are featured in our year-long Georgia on My Plate series, as well as watch videos and find recipes featuring their products, please go to ajc.com forward slash Georgia on My Plate. Alana, thanks again so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lagaya. Nice chatting with you. You too. The number of books by black authors published by major publishing houses is historically very low, except for February. Then a flurry of books about race, civil rights, and black leaders appear on the market just in time for Black History Month. The tides appear to be turning, though, at least anecdotally. In recent years, Suzanne Van Atten writes, the number of books written by black authors that cross her desk at the AJC has swelled. In part, it's the result of the publishing industry reacting to current events. She also offers news of the upcoming Black Writers Weekend, which will be in Atlanta in June. Get the details on AJC.com. The story of Stuckey's is a real-life testament to the American dream. Rural Georgia in 1937, an enterprising young law school dropout turned farmer gets a $35 loan from his grandmother and sets out in his Model A Ford, scouring local farms to buy pecans which he would turn for a profit at a nearby nutshelling plant. With his new connections to pecan suppliers, W.S. Sylvester Stuckey Sr. tries his hand at retail, setting up a simple pecan shack along the side of the highway in Eastman, Georgia. The appeal for Stuckey's roadside retail brand grew over the years into a franchise sprawling over 368 stores in more than 30 states, welcoming travelers with clean restrooms, gasoline, kitschy souvenirs, and Stuckey's pecan candies. Over the years, the number of stores dwindled. Now Stephanie Stuckey, a third-generation Stuckey and a career politician and attorney, is at the helm and is helping bring back the iconic roadside favorite. Read the rest of the story on AJC.com. Museums, theaters, and tourist attractions across Metro Atlanta are still figuring out how to adapt to new CDC guidance regarding the wearing of masks. Recently, the Centers for Disease Control announced that fully vaccinated people who are at least two weeks out from their second shot can go without masks in most indoor and outdoor situations. But even with the new relaxed rules for vaccinated people, some venues aren't rushing to change their safety protocols. 
They said that while they were closely watching CDC developments, the decision to allow unmasked vaccinated visitors was complex because the pandemic is still not over. Find out how some local arts organizations and venues are reacting to the new guidelines in Rosalind Bentley's story on AJC.com. Atlantic Station will soon be home to a Parisian-inspired champagne bar. Rosé Bistro and Champagne Bar is set to open this fall at Midtown Mixed-Use Development Atlantic Station. Located at 232 19th Street, the bar will feature an extensive wine list and classic French dishes for brunch, dinner, and light bites, according to a press release. Keep up with all the latest news from Atlanta's restaurant scene on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.